So when we're talking about bait, I learned, first learned about bait as a little child, as I'm sure many of you did. My grandpa had a big farm in southern Ohio, and he had a pond. And he took me fishing. I could hardly walk, and he took me fishing. So from a very young age, he taught me how to put a worm on a hook. And my uncle, if he ever hears the podcast, he's still living. So, hey, Uncle Stan. My uncle didn't use worms when he would take me fishing. He was a very serious fisherman. And he had a tackle box. And I was so fascinated by this tackle box because there were just dozens of lures inside. And then there were different types of lures for different types of water or different types of fish or different times of the day. And there was this whole world opened up to me about bait that was a little different than grandpa's worms and chicken livers. But the idea about bait is to offer the fish something that it will bite. And when they bite it, you get them hooked. They're attached, they're hooked, that's it. Life's over for that fish unless you are gracious and you decide to throw it back. Well, there is a spiritual bait, and Satan often goes fishing, but he does not need a tackle box full of lures, and he does not need the worms on the hook. Satan has one bait. He has a bait that has been working for 6,000 years, and this bait is the reason why some people will never come to Christ. It's also why many who have come to Jesus you will not find them sitting on a church pew this weekend. It's why some of you, even here tonight, have lost your joy and your zeal in the Lord, and you are not experiencing the fullness of what God has for you in your spiritual walk with him. Because so many people have taken the bait. And the bait of Satan is offense. Being offended. Being offended is deadly to a disciple of Jesus. And over the next three weeks, we are going to be talking about offense and being offended and the spirit of offense that operates and how it can be so deadly. Now, don't tune me out because I know when I reveal this bait, Maybe it's not what you were waiting for. Maybe it's not what you expected. But I have discovered that there are many people who are deeply offended and who do not even realize they are offended. There are many people, good Christian church-going people, who are offended, who maybe are in denial that they're truly offended. And so... That is why the bait has so much effect, and it is so important that we discuss this, that we teach on this, that it is preached about, that it is taught on a regular basis in our churches. It's the reason we should revisit this topic, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to keep these someplace and pull them out and go back over them from time to time. I do. I personally have worn this topic out in Bible study over the last 15 or 20 years. I have a whole folder, physical folder, and I have a whole folder in my phone where I just write notes on this topic. And from time to time, I have to go back and remind myself, don't be offended. Don't take the bait, okay? T. Austin Sparks said, one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life lurks in the common pathway of discipleship. It is the peril of being offended. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be speaking a lot about offense. We're going to be looking into this subject very deeply and seeing what scripture has to say about it. I promise if you sit here right now and you think, well, this doesn't apply, I'm not offended. You deceive yourself. Because every one of us, the Bible, as we will study later this, in this study tonight, the Bible tells us offenses will come. You cannot escape it. It's not they might. The word of God says they will come. So 
Jesus spoke a lot about offenses. There's a lot in Scripture. The Scripture has a lot to say on this topic. It is not quiet on this topic. And Matthew eleven six, Jesus was speaking, and he said these words, Blessed is he who is not offended in me. So the word offended in this scripture right here, this scripture that Jesus spoke and many other scriptures throughout the New Testament, the word offended comes from the Greek word scandalon. That's a funny sounding word, but it's spelled like this if you're taking notes, S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N, scandalon. And that's a Greek word that literally means to ensnare or to trap. So this tells us that the Greeks had a special word for the portion of the animal snare upon which a bait was laid. And that word was scandalon. So I want to show you tonight. I brought a prop. It's not set. But this has a scandal on, according to the Greek word that is translated into our English scriptures. The scandal on is the part of the trap where the animal takes the bait when it snaps shut and the animal is ensnared. That is the scandal on. We get our English word scandal from this Greek word scandal on. A scandal is something that offends us. And to be scandalized means I was offended. So in the New Testament, scandalon is literally translated as offense. Many times over and over again in your New Testament, when you see the word offense, get that picture in your mind that the Greek word for that is scandalon, a bait, a trap. Okay? That's what an offense is. And it is also translated many times over as the words or the phrases stumbling block or a stumbling stone. Ever read those scriptures? Not to be a stumbling block. And so those are also instances in the New Testament when the word scandalon was being used. And these were words and terms that are interchangeable in the New Testament. Offenses, stumbling block stumbling stone, they all meant the same word, and they meant this. The part that will get you, will bait you, and trap you. So offenses scandalize us, and they trip us up in our walk with God. And I can tell you the thing that trips us up may only be one inch high, but if it makes us stumble, it can be effective in blocking our movement forward, and it can be as if it were a mountain range in our way. Amen? Anybody ever been there? Let me give you an example. Before moving to Athens, we lived in downtown Lancaster, and we had city sidewalks that they so wonderfully did not always take care of. And you could go on a walk with the, with the kids, or you'd, you know they'd be on their bike or pushing a baby stroller, and Have you ever been walking on a sidewalk where it's uneven? And it doesn't have to be very big at all. It can be just that big, just an inch high with an uneven sidewalk. And if you're not paying attention, and if you trip on that little one-inch difference that's sticking up in your way, you can fall. You can be hurt by just that little one inch of sidewalk that tripped you up. I've seen it in the church, and when I say the church, I don't just mean life point, but I've seen it in the church that people will get offended at the littlest things. The littlest offenses, and the enemy will use them to trip us up, to keep us from moving forward. And even though that was the tiniest offense, It's as great as a mountain in front of us because our momentum has stopped. We have fallen. We have tripped. We're discouraged. And that's all it took. I've seen people get offended at, well, they took my seat. Well, they looked at me wrong. Well, they rolled their eyes or they said this or they said that. I've seen people get offended with the ministry. They did this. They didn't do that. 
I've literally seen people get offended with ministry, and you'll have one person offended because the pastor did this, and you'll have one, another person offended because the pastor didn't do this. So offense is all over the place, and yes, it can be in the church. People can get offended at the littlest of things. Unfortunately, so many times these little offenses cause big problems. And when people take the bait, I have seen it time and time again. Sometimes, yes, they are able to overcome their offense, but sometimes they're not able. And I know people tonight, and I'm sure you do as well, who became offended and they no longer sit on our pews. They no longer worship with us on Sundays because of a little offense. There's a couple of parts, a couple of elements to a trap. Every trap has two distinct elements. The first one is that a trap must be hidden or disguised. And that's pretty obvious. Proverbs 1.17 tells us that if a bird sees a trap being set, it's going to stay away, you know. So we have to have a hidden trap, whether it's a mouse, you know, if the, if the trap is, is not looking appeasing or doesn't look dangerous to the mouse, he's going to run away, you know, or he's not going to take the bait is what I mean. So the trap has to be disguised or it has to look appealing. It can't look dangerous to the animal, even though we know little piece of cheese on there, and it might not look so dangerous to Mr. Mouse, but we know that that's his neck right here. We've all, we've all experienced that, I'm sure. So it doesn't look dangerous. It's just a piece of wood and some metal and a little piece of cheese on there. It doesn't look dangerous at all. And the, the mouse doesn't think that it's harmful. So that's the first element of a trap. It has to be hidden or disguised to appear as not being harmful. Secondly, the trap has to be baited. The mouse probably isn't going to go inspect a piece of wood with some metal unless there's something interesting on there that will lure him in. The bait has to be something that appeals to the mouse. The trap that Satan sets is always designed to make us stumble. He does not love you he does not want you to succeed. He does not want you to be a part of God's church. He does not want you to thrive and grow in your relationship with God. The enemy does not want you to love your brother and your sister. The enemy does not want you to give and serve and be a part of the local church and the kingdom. He doesn't want those things. So he will set a trap that is designed to make you stumble and the bait of Satan that he sets before us is an opportunity to be offended. It's all it takes if he can give you an opportunity to take offense. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thomas Brooks said, he that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken by Satan's hook. So hear this. There is no way to avoid the bait. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to avoid stumbling blocks. Jesus himself said it in Luke 17, 1. It is impossible for offenses not to come. They're going to come. Offenses are inevitable. If you live in this life with people, you're going to be offended. You're going to have the opportunity placed before you sometimes many times a day right? Some days seem worse than others, but offenses will come. You cannot live in this world without being offended. All right, so I'm going to just put this statement out there, and maybe pastor would agree with me, but it is my observation that offense and the bait of Satan is probably the greatest hindrance to the work of God. It is the greatest hindrance to God's kingdom moving forward. The bait of Satan and being offended is the greatest hindrance to revival. It's the greatest hindrance to God's church being healthy and loving and welcoming and 
being a soul-winning church. It's the greatest hindrance to any of that. I want to read from a booklet by Bob Mumford. This is a very old Bible track from the late 70s, and it was called Scandalon. Okay, so let me read this. I'm just going to read it because I can't do any better than Bob did 40 years ago. So, today, multitudes of Christians are not serving God. They attend no local church or do so only occasionally. They will not make a commitment to any church. They come, but they don't serve. They receive spiritual food, but they don't give. They call when they're in trouble, but they never serve others. These are always the offended ones. Somewhere down the line, they have been scandalized. The trap was baited, and they picked up the offense. The door slammed shut, and they have been trapped ever since. They carry their offense on their back wherever they go. It's their excuse for not growing with God. They quickly tell you, we've been so hurt in the church. They can tell you details of how they were offended by a pastor, a sermon, a certain teaching, a brother, a sister, a church leader. They can tell you details how they didn't like the vision, the direction, some prophecy or word that was given. But the bottom line is always the same. They are offended and have no part of advancing the kingdom of God. Failing to realize that offenses must come, they seek a place where there are no offenses. They long to find a place of rest where no word spoken will upset them and where all the people are pleasant and polite. But Jesus himself says such a place doesn't exist. That might have been 40-some years old, but I think Bob speaks about our church today. It is the greatest restriction on God's kingdom being advanced. And if we as a church want to see revival and want to see the promises of God, we have to, as a church, refuse to be offended. And if you as individuals want to see revival in your home and in your families, on your workplace, if you want to be a part of advancing the kingdom of God, then we have to refuse to be offended. And over the next few weeks, I hope to give you some tools as to how this can be done. So let me just kind of summarize what we've said thus far. Since offenses are deadly and offenses must come, we now understand that the issue is not whether or not we will be offended, but the issue is how will you respond when you are offended? This is the critical question. And as John Bevere says in the book, our response to offense determines our future. When you are faced with the bait, your response in that moment determines tomorrow, determines Sunday, determines a month from now, determines five years from now. So, that is a critical question, and John, I agree with you if he ever hears this podcast, but I would also take it one step further. It not only determines our future, but it also affects our current spiritual health and our current progress. The quality of my Christian life is based on how I handle offense. We have to determine not to be offended. Yes, even pastors and pastor's wives have to say, I will not be offended. Okay? So it is our response that will determine our future, but it is also our response that's going to affect our spiritual health right now. All right, there are two kinds, two main kinds of offenses, okay? And if you come to these sessions over the next few weeks, we're going to break all of this down, and we're going to talk about these various kinds of offenses and how to deal with them in a biblical way. And I will tell you that this teaching has saved my life over and over 
and over again. I am still standing because of this teaching. And when offenses come, I will tell you, it's not natural in the beginning to handle offense in a biblical way. But the more you do it, and the more you immerse yourself in the word, and the more you pull out these scriptures one month from now and six months from now, I need to revisit those scriptures that were taught. The more you get this in your spirit, it begins to become a more natural response to offense. And that is why it is something that we must revisit over and over and over again. The two main kinds of offense. The first is to be offended at God. Yes, that happens. And some of you in this room tonight might say, oh, no, you know, not me. Well, we're going to talk. The second one is to be offended by others. So you can be offended at God or you can be offended at other people. If you are offended at God, we must get to a place of repentance. We must humble ourselves before him and we must speak to him about it. And don't think that you can't talk to God about your offense. Don't think you can't tell God, God, I'm angry. I'm upset with what you did or didn't do. That's called lamenting. Read the book of Job. Read the Psalms of David. They were real and raw before God, and they lamented before him because they were offended at God's decisions and God's choices. They asked questions. They, you know, but the important thing is not that you're not allowed to question a sovereign God. Yes, you have to trust a sovereign God. But you can ask him the questions in your humanity. You can cry out and humble yourself before him. But don't stay there. Get up and say, okay, God, I refuse to be offended at you. If you're offended at others, the biblical answer is forgiveness. So let's talk for a moment about how to, how to handle offenses from others. Luke 17, 1 through 5. We're going to kind of break through, work through this passage a little bit. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. We get three things from this first verse right here. The first thing we get is that this was special teaching for the disciples, okay? This is not teaching for casual church goers, and this is not teaching for unbelievers. This is not something we expect out of our atheist coworker. We have to understand this kind of teaching was to who? The disciples. He was speaking to his disciples, and he was telling them, let me let you in on a little secret. You're going to be offended. But woe to him through whom they do come. So that's the second thing we get from this, is offenses must come. It's inevitable. The next thing we get from this is we must do everything possible to avoid needlessly offending people. See that? Woe to him through whom the offenses do come. That means as Christians, it should be our desire not to needless, needlessly offend someone. We shouldn't be going around trying to upset people, trying to stir up trouble, trying to stir the pot, trying to, to start something. That's not what a Christian does because woe to you if you're bringing offense needlessly to your brothers and sisters. Because the next verse says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And I know that we often use that, that scripture to talk about little ones as in little children. And I totally believe in that. And I believe it matters how we treat children and how we talk to them and how we train them and, and how we, you know, the things that we say to them. We should weigh our words to children but I also think that little ones, I will just tell you, I love new converts. And I am a mama bear over those little ones. I want to raise them up and I want to take care of them and teach them and disciple them. And that is the job of the church. We are the mother, the bride of Christ. And we should mother those little ones and not offend them. We shouldn't make it so hard for them to reach Jesus that we're putting that stumbling block or that scandal on right in their way because they're just trying. They're just learning to walk. 
verse 3 says that when it comes to offenses, we have to take heed. And I love that terminology because it sounds so important. Take heed. I'm going to start using that to my kids. Stop running through the house. Take heed. So it means, (laughs) sorry, that wasn't in my notes. That literally just means watch out, okay? So we have to watch out, take heed to ourself, be in touch with yourself because the bait of Satan is going to present itself to you at any time, at any place. It's going to come. And we can sit around acting as if, nah, not me. You know, I'm the most easygoing person. I know easygoing people can get offended, Okay, so the bait is going to present itself. So this scripture is telling us, watch out, look for it, be in tune, fine-tune your spirit. And how can you do that? Through the word, through this teaching, through this series the next week, we're going to kind of fine-tune our spirits so that we can be on our A game and we are going to take heed, we're going to watch out for the bait of the enemy Because I can tell you, it could very well come after Bible study tonight. It could come in the middle of Bible study. You know, somebody looked at you the wrong way, cross-eyed. You know, or it could come before you make it to the parking lot. It could come when you pull out into the highway. It could come by the time you get home and you've opened up that wonderful app we call Facebook. It can come over and over and over again. And so that bait is going to present itself to you anytime any place, take heed, be ready. And then in the very next part of the scripture, Jesus gives us the key, and that is forgiveness. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now again, notice something. The term here is brother. Okay, so he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about brothers and sisters here. Who can really hurt us like our family? Why do church hurts hurt so much? Why does hurts within our own families, our own biological families, why do they hurt so very much? Because no one can hurt us like a brother. Not an enemy. Jesus knew and understand this. It wasn't an enemy that betrayed him. Judas sat across the table, and it was a friend. Those hurts hurt. I have walked with a limp because of church hurts. You have walked with a limp because of church hurts. All of us bear battle scars from the family that we come from. Not church family, but the family that we come from. All of us have battle scars. I'm sure from something in the church or in our families, people that were supposed to love us and care for us, and they hurt us. Whether they meant to or not, they offended us. Who can really hurt us like a brother? The most serious offenses always come from family. They come from the church. They come from those who we care the most about. Because if you're driving down the road and the stranger drives by and does something rude to you, like, You know, yeah, you're mad, you're going to stew about it, but you're going to get over it because you don't have a dog in that fight. You don't have any emotion in that relationship. But when you're talking about brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, you're talking about church family and your family, those are the most serious hurts. It really hurts us when a brother offends us, but Jesus tells us exactly what to do, and he says we have to deal with it. If your brother sins against you, then we're going to deal with it. You're not going to just say, oh, just not going to deal with it. Or, you know, I'm just going to go talk to this person about it. Mm -mm. Jesus is not pleased when we don't go to our brother with our offenses, but we go behind our brother. You're no better than they are. So he tells us to rebuke. The word rebuke here means let them know that they offended you. Tell them 
You offended me. It's that easy. Okay? Now, I will say, don't be petty. Okay? This is not necessarily in this scripture, but this is Sister B, chapter 1, verse 17. Okay? Don't be petty because I know sometimes we can get offended over the silliest little thing, and we don't have to, every time we get offended, go run to that person, oh, you offended me. Okay? That's not what the scripture is saying here. You know, how many times in the church have we had someone come to us and they say, well, you know, I just want you to know that I am offended. Okay, well, I can receive that. You know, what are you offended about, sister? Well, you didn't speak to me. Oh, well, I'm sorry I didn't hear you speak first. When we're petty, this is not what the scripture is talking about. There are times that people can be so petty with their offenses that I, we often wish that they wouldn't have even told us they were offended. Just go forgive me in secret, okay? Anybody ever felt that way? But when we are to rebuke our brother or sister, it's when, okay, they really offended me and I can't get over it. I can't deal with it. I am, I'm hanging on to this. I can't, I just, I got to release it, okay? Not every little offense. So we're going to rebuke, and then it says to give them a chance to repent, to apologize, to make it right to you. Oftentimes, if you go to them and say, if someone comes to you and says, you know, you offended me, you said this, then they'll say, oh, my goodness, that's not what I meant at all, but please forgive me. So they'll, they'll make it right by you, okay? But then it really comes the kicker, okay? Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, what do we do? We forgive. And in Matthew 18, Jesus told Peter not just seven times a day, but he said 70 times seven. That's a lot of times, so this is one of the greatest things we can get in our spirit is forgiveness, 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 over and over. Maybe they didn't even apologize. Maybe they're not even sorry. Maybe they didn't even know they offended you. Maybe it was completely accidental. They didn't even mean to. Maybe they did mean to. Guess what? Forgive them. That's always the answer over and over and over again in Scripture. Jesus says to forgive. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have to make up your mind to live in a never-ending state of unconditional forgiveness over and over. Why? Because we're all human. We all live in this flesh, and we're going to offend, and we're going to be offended. So we have to determine in ourselves over and over and over again, I will forgive. I will forgive. This is a radical kind of discipleship that makes our head spin, and it did the disciples as well. So if we read verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is the only time that Jesus' disciples ever asked him to increase their faith. They did not ask him to increase their faith when he sent them out to heal the sick and cast out devils. They didn't ask him to increase their faith when he told them to feed the multitudes. They didn't ask, they didn't ask him to increase their faith when he invited them out to walk on the water. The only time they asked for an increase in faith was when Jesus told them how to handle the bait of Satan. And he said, walk in forgiveness handle your offenses. And they said, oh, increase our faith. Basically, they're saying, Lord, do you know how hard that is? We need your help. We need more faith in you and your forgiveness. But we must do it because offense cuts us off from God. John Bevere says in the book, The Bait of Satan, it separates us from the pipeline I've never seen anything block blessings from heaven except offense, and that is scripture. 
that's not John. The word of God tells us when you get down to pray, if you are offended and you remember it, get up, stop praying because God doesn't want to hear it. He wants you to go make it right with your brother or your sister. Then come back and pray. Offense is one of the very few things that can block your prayer life. God will not listen to you if you are offended with someone. It is that important. It separates us from the pipeline. It cuts us off from the vine. So, signs of the last days. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that in the last days, what many will be offended. Let's read some scripture, uh, starting with verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, verse 10, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. If there's ever been a time when people are offended, it is right now. People live in a constant state of offense. You have to be politically correct. You have to say the right things. You have to do all the right things. You have to know all the right words and exactly how not to offend everybody. Anybody ever feel like they walk on eggshells everywhere they go? It is because there is so much offense in our world, and the Bible tells us that that will be so. But this is a golden moment for the church because if the church can be countercultural and we can go against what's happening out there and we can choose not to operate in offense, we can help them. We can show them. We can disciple the nations like the scripture says. We can teach the world what God's love looks like because God's love is not always shown in this world. But as Christians, we, choosing not to be offended, we can minister to people. Before we can minister to others, we have to be able to pass the test ourselves. I ask you tonight, what would happen in an offense-proof church if there was no offense? If we just made the choice, nope, not going to be offended. What unity Unity brings power. What unity we would have, what power we would have, what wonderful things we would see, miracles, signs, and wonders. We would see salvation. We would see our altars fruitful. We would see our baptismal waters, you know, constantly in use because we're free of offense. We can't help others if we're walking in offense ourselves. So I'm going to speak for a few more minutes as we start to kind of pull this together tonight. Being offended with Jesus, one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life lurks in the pathway of discipleship. T. Austin Sparks says it is the danger of being offended in Christ. Many church-going people might be offended that I even mention such a thing as possible. Offended with Jesus? No. How could you say that? Like the Apostle Peter, they may be in denial. So I'm going to take the next few minutes here to show you how we become offended with Jesus. And this is where we're going to find our starting point for ridding ourselves of offense over the next several weeks. Hours before Jesus went to the cross in Mark 14, 27, he told his disciples, all of you will be offended because of me tonight, this night. Peter's response was, though all be offended, yet not I. Peter said, no way. 
you know, they might, but I'm not going to be. But Jesus said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And guess what? He did. Peter was in denial of his denial. When we have a zeal for Jesus, and I know Peter's that apostle that, you know, he just had a zeal. He was the go-getter. When we have such a zeal for Jesus, sometimes we can't imagine ourselves being offended by him. We love him. We want to serve him. But if someone as great as Peter, always listed first among the apostles, could be offended by Jesus, we ought to realize that it can happen to us. We're not exempt. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. Jesus does offend, and he offends a lot of people. You will be offended by his word. I will be offended by his word. That's why we say sometimes, oh, pastor was stepping on my toes when he shares that word, because his word offends. It's supposed to. It cuts us. It divides. It reveals things, and it helps us to grow in him, sanctifies us. We will be offended by the teaching of the word. We will be offended by leadership, and we will be offended by our pastor. A a shepherd's staff hurts. When that shepherd's staff goes out to pull them back in, doesn't feel so great on the sheep. But God has placed pastors to oversee the flock and to shepherd us. And sometimes that means offending us. I give my husband, my pastor, full authority in my life to offend me any day. If I'm wrong, if I'm doing wrong, I want the man of God to call it out. I want him to speak into my life. I want him to offend me so I can be right with God. During the course of his life on earth, Jesus offended just about everyone. He offended his family. Mark 3.21, his family heard what was happening. They tried to take him away and said, he's out of his mind. Like, he's, what is wrong with him? He offended his family. In uh, later verses in that chapter, he wouldn't even go outside and see them, his own family. Read it, Mark chapter 3. He offended his hometown in Mark chapter 6. <laughs> when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And they were offended at him. He went in and just offended his whole hometown. He started teaching, and they said, who is this? There's such wisdom. Isn't that Mary's son? And then they got offended at everything he had to say. He offended his friends, Mary and Martha. Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died Have you ever been offended when Jesus didn't show up on your time? He offended the rich young ruler. He said, go, sell all you have. He said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all you have. In Mark 10, 22, it says that at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much. He was fine with Jesus until Jesus put his finger on the one thing he didn't want to give up, and that was his money, his treasure. And Jesus offended him. He offended Simon Peter in Matthew 16. He called him Satan. In, in one part of this passage, I love it. We're not going to read it all right now, but Matthew 16, Jesus blesses Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. He gives him a blessing, right? And then Peter basically rebuked him because he didn't like the message that Jesus was giving. Like, you know, he thought Jesus' kingdom was going to be a little bit different than what Jesus, Jesus was talking about suffering. And he didn't like that. So he said, Peter kind of rebuked Jesus' message. And then Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Have you ever been offended by Jesus' message? John 6 He was teaching, and Jesus knew in himself 
that his disciples were complaining. And so he said them, he said to them, what? Does this offend you? Does this teaching offend you? He knew what he was preaching was causing the crowd to get smaller. This is another passage you can read at home this week, John chapter 6. It is very interesting to walk through this passage of Scripture because Jesus is teaching to this huge multitude. Okay, we see that there's this huge crowd coming to hear him speak. And as he's teaching, he's whittling the crowd down from 5,000 down to just 12 because of offense. And he says, uh, does this word offend you? And then the crowd gets smaller, and he keeps on preaching. And I can just imagine, I wasn't there, but I can just imagine him just kind of walking and, you know, pre- preaching, and he stops, and he makes a point that he knows. I'm going to lose several hundred with this one. And he puts it out there, and there they go. And he walks on a little further with them. And who keeps walking? That's what he wants to know. Who doesn't get offended and walk off? Who keeps walking with him? Well, by the end of this passage, it's his disciples. And in John 6, 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? I'm not trying to paint a difficult Jesus, but this is the real Jesus. Jesus was happy to minister to everyone. He was happy to teach the crowds and heal the sick. But when it came to discipleship, to being a disciple, the stakes were higher. And as people got offended, less and less were walking with him. And only the disciples stayed. In Luke 9, Jesus offended three men in six verses. Now, that is an accomplishment. The first one, the man who wanted to bury his father first, he said, let the dead bury their dead. Come follow me. To the man who first wanted to look after his business, if you're not willing to be homeless, I don't have a home, then you can't be my disciple. To the one who just wanted to say goodbye to his family, that's all, I'll come follow you, but I'm just going to go say goodbye He said, ah, no double-minded man can inherit the kingdom. So there's a pattern here and a lesson about the ministry of Jesus. The invitation is to everyone. He makes himself accessible to everyone. He has a whosoever will approach, but he never pulled any punches about what it would mean to really follow him and be a disciple. I would venture to say that today the church as a whole has the whosoever will part down. We welcome. We, we just let them in and we love on them. By and large, the church in America has bent over backwards to be inclusive and be nice and to, to, in, to bring people in. But the problem is that we fail to make disciples because we don't want to offend And sometimes the word of God is going to offend. Sometimes it does weed people out because that's what he wants to do. He wants to keep walking and see who will keep walking with him. So most church-going people in America today never grow up spiritually beyond a baby level. They know about Jesus the Savior, but they know almost nothing about Jesus, their Lord, Lord over all, Lord over their life, Lord over their finances, Lord over their family, Lord over their activities and their time and their entertainment, Lord over their household, Lord over their devotional time, Lord over their prayer life. They don't, they don't know this. They don't understand that. The same Jesus who loved everyone and ministered to everyone never shrank back from telling the truth about what it means to follow him. So, a few very challenging scriptures before we land the plane tonight. Matthew 10, 24 to 26. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? 
basically they're saying that he's the master of the house and he's the Lord of devils. That's what they've called him. And if they've done that to him, then what are they going to do to us? He's saying here, prepare to be reviled because you're my disciple. Luke 14, 26 and 27 Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own self, you can't be the, his disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder and take up his own cross and follow can't be his disciple. Luke 14, simply put, if you're not willing to give up what is dear to you, you can't be his disciple. John 15, 20, since they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. And I'm paraphrasing all these to move quickly. But you can be a church member and not be a disciple of Jesus. We can attend church, but we can be offended at what he would ask of us. We can be offended at what he would expect us to do. We can be offended for many different things. We can be offended because we stand up for him and somebody else takes offense for that, over that. So the Lord says... That following him and being a true disciple, expect offenses, expect persecution, expect being reviled. So if we want to follow Jesus and we want him to be Lord and we want to be a close disciple, we're going to have to learn how to not be offended by him. How did those 12 disciples get all the way? Well, not quite all 12 of them. How did they get all the way to the cross? How did that inner circle walk with him and walk with him and walk with him? And how did those few make it to the cross? They were not offended. They had to make the choice. I will keep following. I don't like what he has to say. I don't like his message. It's stepping on my toes. He's expecting too much, but I will keep following. All right, so we're going to talk in closing about John the Baptist. He was a man sent from God. He spent 30 years in preparation. He was the first to recognize Jesus and proclaim him to be the Lamb of God. He was the one who insisted on baptism from Jesus, the one of whom Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven that no one who's ever lived is greater than John the Baptist. But what happened? John got offended at Jesus And his offense led to even doubt if Jesus were real. He expected to have a place in the ministry and in the kingdom that Jesus had come to build. But now Herod had John in prison. He expected Jesus to take over the kingdom, but he didn't. And he's in Herod's prison. He expected him to get him out of prison, but here he is. And the man is on the way to cut off his head. John gets so offended at Jesus that he begins to wonder if he is the Messiah after all. After he has already proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, now in his offense, he says in Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, when John was in prison and he heard about Jesus' works, he sent word out through the disciples and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we should be looking for or should we look for someone else? And Jesus replied to him and said, go and tell John all the things that you hear and see. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor are having the gospel preached to them. And he ends it with this, blessed is he who was not offended because of me. He knew that John had become offended at him. If someone as great as John can be offended at Jesus, so can we. How do these offenses with God, how do they come? They come by way of disappointment. And in this closing thoughts, this can save your life. So hear me. If you don't need this tonight, there's going to come a day you're going to need this. And I hope the Spirit will remind you of this. Offenses come because we are disappointed. People There are are people in this room tonight who are offended at Jesus and are in denial of it. We become offended by, Austin Sparks gives us a list of several ways we become, reasons we become offended at Jesus. 
and sometimes not even realize it. The first is the severity of his requirements. The second is the mystery of his contradictions. The third is the slowness of his methods. And the fourth is the unreasonableness of his silence. The severity of his requirements. When we first come to Jesus, we expect just, you know, a path of roses, air filled with perfume. And then we realize that companionship with him is severe. He expects a lot from his people, from his disciples. And we can become discouraged and offended because he would ask so much of me. The mystery of his contradictions. We ask him for rest, but he seems to give us more kingdom work to do. We look for peace, but he sends us to the most amazing promises, but life is still hard. Sometimes we think that what we're asking for doesn't come and that I thought he was the God of peace. Why don't I have peace? And we blame him for these contradictions and we become offended. The slowness of his methods. Kingdom, the kingdom does not move fast. The kingdom moves on God's timeline, on his pace, not on our clocks and calendars, but it's on his time. And sometimes we think it must happen right now. Especially in our culture, we want it right now. We want the microwave, we want the drive-through, we want everything right now in this minute. And we have to understand that sometimes his process is slow. Sometimes his methods are slow. And we can become offended because we think he didn't answer when he should have. The unreasonableness of his silence. I've had someone ask me not too long ago, what do you do when you pray and pray and pray and you hear nothing? My advice is the first thing I do is I check my spirit for offense because God won't listen to me. But if I still know I'm not offended and my spirit is right before God and before man, then I listen to the silence and I try to hear what he's not saying. The silence of God is a message. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer. Sometimes he answers with a yes. Sometimes it's a no. Sometimes it's a not right now. And sometimes it's silence. And in that silence is a message. And we can become offended by it or we can look for what God is trying to show us. All right, everybody, uh, fasten your seatbelts and get ready for the landing. Jesus anticipated our offenses. In the closing chapters of John, it touches my heart when you read these chapters to see how much Jesus said to his disciples in those final few days before he went to the cross. You talk about hurt and offense. Jesus knew. Jesus knew, but Judas ate. Jesus knew, but Judas sat at that table. And in these last days, and we're coming into that season of the year when I always make it a point to read these closing chapters of John and look at how Jesus interacted with his disciples in those final days before Calvary, knowing that he was leaving, knowing that they would offend, knowing that they would betray, knowing that they would forsake him in the moment when he needed them. If you read John chapter 13 through 19, I encourage you to do that this time of year because all of this in Scripture takes place in one week before the cross. John 13 through John 19, all of those chapters is one week. He teaches them about how safe they were with him. He promised them that he would be with them through the Holy Spirit that's coming, that he was going away to prepare a place for them, that they were loved 
and that they were cherished. And right in the middle of these six chapters, he says in John 16, 1, these things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. Every one of us needs to remember what Jesus spoke in this passage of Scripture. And when he spoke to John, and when he said, blessed is he who was not offended in me, there is a blessing in not being offended and making a choice not to be offended by God. He's a sovereign God. Do we always understand his ways? No. And we're not meant to. We couldn't even handle it. We look through a glass darkly, and one day we'll understand it better by and by. One day it'll all make sense, but it's our job to trust him and not be offended by what he does in our lives. Blessed is he. In the bait of Satan, John Bevere writes to John and says, John, I know you don't understand what's happening with you and many of God's ways, but do not be offended because God does not operate in the way you expected. And that is a message that the Lord was saying to John the Baptist, but I think we can all take that personal tonight. Take that as a message that we need to get in our spirits. I know you don't understand. I know that you don't understand all of his ways, but do not be offended because he operated in a way that you did not expect. This is the blessedness of the unoffended. Can we all stand? Whether we realize it or not, every person in this room has been offended by God. Whether we realize it or not, there are people in this room tonight that may be feeling offense toward him, and maybe you don't even realize it. And that is why we are to humble ourselves and go before him in prayer and ask him to show us what is within us, bear our hearts to him, lament before him if you need to. I've done it. It's the most human thing to do. David did it. Read the Psalms. He laid himself bare before God and said, how, how, God, or where, where are you? Have you forsaken me? Or why, why did you let this happen? You can ask him the questions. He might not always give you the answer because he doesn't have to. But that's where our faith comes in. When we bear ourselves before him and he brings us comfort. You know what he did to Mary and Martha when they were offended and they said, if you would have come sooner, then this wouldn't have happened. Our brother would still be alive. We always jump to the next part of the story very quickly, and we say, oh, then he went over to that tomb, and he spoke to Lazarus and said, come on up out of here, old boy. And that's, we love to shout and rejoice over that. But wait, before he did that, he wept with them. The most real and human thing that he could have done was stop. He knew that Lazarus was going to, to be resurrected. He knew what he was about to do. But they had lamented before him, and he didn't reject them. He didn't say, don't talk to me that way. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, oh, but you don't understand. I have a better plan if you would have just trusted me. He didn't say any of those things. He wept with those sisters. And if, if we have places in our heart where we're holding offense unto God, he will weep with you. He will comfort you. He will be near to the brokenhearted. He will minister to you. And we must repent and we must free ourselves of offense with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and I'm going to have pastor come out and close us.
God, we invite you, Lord, to speak to our hearts tonight. We invite you, Lord, to reveal unto us anything, God, that's not pleasing, that's not like you, God, anything, God, in our hearts that we've held against you, any charge we have placed against you, Lord. We ask you, God, to show it to us tonight, to reveal it to us, God. Let us take your word, God, and let us perform heart surgery. Let us go deep within ourselves and ask, God, are we offended at you, Jesus? We need to make ourselves right before you before we can be right before men. God, we want to be right in your sight. We want to be pleasing to you, God. And if there's any thought, if there's any wickedness in me, God, if there's any offense or any charge I hold against you for things you've done or haven't done or for your timing or for your word or for your expectations, whatever it might be, God, just heal us tonight, God, and help us, Lord, to be free of offense. Let us not take the bait that the enemy has placed before us that would turn us against our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.